Welcome to Orphan Entertainment, a podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. Now, I usually introduce my co-host with a joke or a pun relating to this month to the month's topic, but since I really couldn't think of anything that was even remotely decent, I'll just say welcome to Lydia. And thank, I appreciate and thank her. that. <laughs> and I'm right with you on that. There's not a whole lot of funny this uh, episode. No, no, I'm afraid not. It is a, it's definitely a, it's a, it's a big topic. And I should go ahead and say right now, uh, just to warn our listeners, that the uh, theme of this film or the film itself includes a lot of language that could be offensive to many people. And I was really debating on what to do about that as far as the clips and our discussion. And I decided that we really can't hide from it and we shouldn't hide it because it is what it is. And, you know, this film is trying to say a very strong message about the, 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 the topic, the topic being segregation and the desegregation of, of schools in the South. So, so yes, there will be some language heard in the clips and in, possibly in discussion. Just fair warning. Uh, I feel like I should put one of those disclaimers here that the, the views and topics discussed in the film The Intruder do not necessarily... <laughs> uh, Absolutely do not reflect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, not deflect, do not reflect the views and opinions of Orphan Entertainment or anyone associated <laughs> with it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's see. I guess with that, I just remind people, uh, first of all, thank you all for tuning in and listening. You can subscribe to Orphan Entertainment through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play, or just grab any. Uh, go to uh, orphanentertainment.com and grab the RSS feed. You can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Orphan Entertainment. Any feedback or thoughts can be emailed to us at orphanentertainment at gmail.com. I encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We can watch many of the films that we've discussed here on Orphan Entertainment. It's also kind of a great way to uh, find out what we're going to be watching because I usually post the movie uh, several weeks before we uh, discuss it. Or before the episode airs, I should say. I think that's about it. We got that covered. We, um, yeah, we got the disclaimer out of the way. <laughs> we got their contact information <laughs> out of the way. And so, I would say, yeah, probably this is not going to be an episode for children. So now would be a great time to skip it. <laughs> if you uh, <laughs> if you have anybody under the age, particularly maybe of 18, this would be a good one to skip. Unless you want to have a discussion about, you know, this That's is American true. history. so That is true. Yeah, so unless you want to have a little discussion, which I certainly encourage. Oh, yeah. Yep. Just be prepared. Exactly. Par- parents listen to this before you have your children Possibly. listen to it. Yeah, very good. <laughs> All right, with that, we will take a brief break. We'll listen to a five-minute mystery and another promo from another podcast that hopefully doesn't mind being associated with this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Not a reflection of them either. (laughs) No. And when we get back, we will discuss 1962's The Intruder. Another five-minute mystery. Headquarters, Inspector Hoskins speaking. Uh, uh, police. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? 
Sam Blake speaking, 37 Hudson Way. Come quick, my wife is dead. Gas. Dead? How long? I don't know. Just got home. 37 Hudson Way. Okay, be right out. And in the meantime, you better throw open those windows and doors. Hey, Mike, grab your chapeau. We got some calling to do. Mr. Blake? Uh, yes, Inspector. Come right here. Thanks. Oh, uh, Mr. Blake, my assistant, Mike Kosky. Howdy. Where's the body? You haven't moved her? Uh, no, no, sir. She's here in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Right where I found her. Uh-huh, of course. Well, Mike and I, I'll just have a look. And there she is, Inspector. Dead as a doornail. Gas, uh, all right. You can still smell a little. Yeah, it looks like most of the gas came from the oven. The door's still a little open. What's that? My simple powers of deduction would say it's a bird. Oh, there it is, a canary, a birdcage in the kitchen, huh? Yeah, but uh, right now we'd better get back to Mr. Blake. Now, Mr. Blake, if you don't mind, there are just a few routine questions. I'd like to know exactly what happened. Well, sir, I, I just come home from the game tonight. I, I'm quite a fan, but my wife didn't care much for sports, so I usually went alone. As I was saying, the game was over about 10.20, I should say. And you came right home? Yes, sir. I, I drove and made it home about 11. I, I thought I smelled something when I tried the door, and the minute it was open, it hit me in the face. Gas all over the place. I rushed in, calling to Jane, and when I went to turn off the jets, I, I found it there on the floor, dead. I see. Of course, I, I knew she was gone when I found her. First thing I could think of was to call the police. Your uh, wife has obviously been dead since about ten. Mr. Blake, if you don't mind my asking, just uh, what happened in the last few seconds of play at the game? Why, Zachowitz fumbled and Carlton recovered for an 80-yard touchdown run. Look here, Inspector. What are you driving at? Just that in case this shouldn't be suicide, I wanted to know if you could back up your alibi. Not suicide? What are you driving at, boss? Yes, Inspector. What are you driving at? Just this, Mr. Blake. I arrest you for the murder of your wife. What did Mr. Blake overlook? Do you know the clue? In a moment, we'll hear firsthand from the inspector. But first... Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom, so tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Now, 
let's see if your powers of deduction are the same as the inspector's. Uh, you can't arrest me. I was at the game till 10.20. I, I proved it. And you said yourself my wife died 20 minutes before. I haven't forgotten the powers of radio, Mr. Blake. But there are a few things you did forget. First of all, if you wanted to kill your wife and then make it look like she was overcome by gas, it might have helped if you'd turned on enough gas. Your wife was dead from another cause, the source of which will be found in an autopsy before the gas jet was even opened. The thing you forgot, Mr. Blake, is that canaries are quite as susceptible to gas as human beings. If there had been enough gas in that kitchen to kill a woman, a small bird certainly could not have survived. And your singing canary is still alive, Mr. Blake. Very much alive. for tuning in hope we didn't scare you off <laughs> now <laughs> the intruder was uh, released in 1962 it was directed by roger corman and it's based on a 1958 novel by charles beaumont and its big star is none other than william shatner the film was also known under its u.s reissue titles as i hate your guts and shame and it was released in the uk as the stranger now, a little backstory on Roger Corman. Roger Corman, I found this kind of interesting. He studied to be an engineer by trade. He got his engineering degree from Stanford University and went to work at U.S. Electrical Motors in L.A. for four days. <laughs> <laughs> he, he started on a Monday, and by Thursday he told his foreman that he had made a big mistake. <laughs> his brother Gene was already working in the film industry as an agent, so he decided to go to, into filmmaking instead. His first job was at 20th Century Fox in the mailroom, and he worked his way up to Story Reader. And while doing this, he came across an idea or a, a project for what would become The Gunfighter, starring Gregory Peck. He apparently helped out on the production of the film, but received absolutely no credit. And being a little pit, uh, peeved, annoyed. <laughs> annoyed, he left Fox. He went to Oxford to study English literature and eventually returned to Los Angeles and tried to establish himself in the film industry. He did various jobs, including television stagehand, and even returned to Fox to work as a messenger. In his spare time, he wrote a script, which he managed to sell to Allied Artists for about $2,000. It was originally called House in the Sea, but it was retitled as Highway Dragnet and was released in 1953. Corman That's also a big worked. Stretch. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a difference in title. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> Just because of, yeah, the, 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 the sea change. and then highway. How did that happen? <laughs> hmm. Corman worked on a, as associate producer on that film for, for no pay, just so he could get the experience. He used that experience and the money to help raise about 12 grand to produce a science fiction film, The Monster from the Ocean Floor. And that one was released by Robert Lippert. The film did well enough to allow Corman to produce another film, a race car thriller, The Fast and Furious, that was released in 54. No relation to the current films, I don't think. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> Corman sold the movie to a new independent company, the American Releasing Company, which was run by James Nicholson and Samuel Arkoff. 
Corman ended up having a long and fruitful career working for Nicholson and Arkoff. American Releasing Company would eventually change its name to the more recognizable American International, and Corman was their chief filmmaker. Now, Corman bought the film rights to The Intruder in 1960, and he was trying to get United Artists to produce what he envisioned would be a vehicle for Tony Randall, and costing about $500,000. Well, United Artists pulled out, and then he was also turned away by AIP and Allied Artists. But he was able to secure a little money from Path Labs, and with and he and his brother Gene put in the balance of the money. And in the end, the total budget for the film was about $80,000. It was shot over three and a half weeks on location in southeast Missouri, and there were some production issues. <laughs> in a 1986 interview, Roger Corman said of the, uh, the townsfolk that were recruited for the crowd scenes and their reaction to William Shatner's character, Adam Kramer, and I quote here, Oh, they loved him. They believed him. I recruited these guys out of the public park. They had these great faces. And I said, this is the man who's coming to town. I want you to be part of this group. Well, when Shatner said, this country shall be free and white, they cheered and they believed him all the way. Some of them were heartbroken at the end of the film when they realized that Kramer was the bad guy. It was a great shock to them. It goes on, when the local citizenry realized the film's true intent, I was thrown out of two towns with flat-out threats from the sheriff of one county and the chief of police in another. Being in I Missouri, read that. Yeah, being in Missouri really didn't make any difference. The sheriff actually told me, if you're in town when the sun sets, you're in jail and don't ever wow. come back. Well, despite rave reviews, Corman could not find anyone to distribute the film, eventually trying to distribute it himself and is the only film of his that was not profitable in its initial release. Well, and I had read that it wasn't profitable until just a few years ago when somebody bought the rights to use the clips in something. <laughs> yeah, uh, some documentary or something, they gave him some, yeah. uh, some small amount of money. It was, I think, $6,000, and it finally pushed them over the <laughs> into the black. <laughs> From that same 1986 interview, he says, With The Intruder, I did a film that I believe was very good, and it got wonderful reviews. One of the New York papers called the film a major credit to the entire American motion picture industry. It won a number of film festival awards, but it was the first film that I ever made that lost money, which taught me something. The public simply didn't want to see that particular kind of film. So you learned fairly early on that unless you're as good as Ingmar Bergman or uh, Fellini, you can't do what you please. I think I was pretty good director, mm-hmm. but I had no illusions that I was working on that level. Mm-hmm. So. After, so after his experience with The Intruder, Corman settled himself in the more profit-friendly genre cinema that got him his start and is still making money with that to this day. He had a very Sullivan's Travels moment. <laughs> Just everybody <laughs> said, nobody really wants to see sad things. Make funny movies or make, you know, scary movies or yeah. genre films were the way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, it's, yeah, real interesting that, you know, this was the type of film that had it been profitable... Had it been successful, I think we wouldn't know Roger Corman as the, you know, kind of the uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the Pope of the Pop uh, movie or the, the King <laughs> the of the King Bees. Of <laughs> <laughs> That's really, it's really interesting how that all came came about. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to really say. Oh, I, I did want to mention that, you know, this film came out in 62. 
Now, if you go back and look at the history just a little bit, just a real brief kind of thing about you know, segregation, the desegregation of the schools, the federal government actually outlawed it many years earlier. But what they didn't do is give anybody any kind of time frame as to how long or when they, it should actually happen. So I get the impression this may be just sort of a, um, a story about a school or a town that was just uh, dragging their feet a little bit and maybe finally having to uh, get with the times. A few things that I found that were interesting, you know, you mentioned that segregation had been made illegal, but uh, as far as like the setting of this movie, it's interesting to kind of understand this. When you start watching this movie, you're going to think that it's this kind of bizarre small town, you know, like, oh, this isn't really how things were, or this is really extreme case, at least if you're from Colorado, like I am. Uh, But, (laughs) but you know, this is in... This really was a really very different time. This was when JFK was president. There wasn't such a thing as a mega store like Walmart or Depot. They didn't even exist yet. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was becoming a big deal. They were still doing nuclear testings at this time. Um, and it was uh, just at the point where women were being more encouraged to be more sexual. So it, it's kind of it's interesting that when all of that kind of a lot of the things that are progressive that we think is being very modern, like Target and Walmart actually opened their first stores the year that this movie was being filmed. Um, Yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of interesting stuff. This is also the year that Marilyn Monroe died, by the way. Um, Kind of unrelated, but also a little interesting (laughs) tidbit. But Bob Dylan started singing this year, or at least started uh, producing records this year. But it was a very different time, and this is... I don't think that it's as much of a shocking situation as we might, we will look at it now and just kind of be like, oh, you know, <laughs> wow, people really talk like that. No, people really did talk like that. Yeah. Um, not ever, certainly, but certainly in some areas. Absolutely. Well, you ready to get into the synopsis a little bit? I think maybe one other thing we want to talk about, and, and you'll see this if you look up other reviews of this movie, they use, and, and this is really what I'm referring to, the use of the N-word, which I'm going to call it the N-word because that's culturally what I'm used to calling it. Uh, it's very prolific in this movie. Um, so so heads up, that's actually what you're going to hear, not so much swearing or yes. anything like that in the clips. Um, so I had to look it up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an English nerd, so I totally I had to look up <laughs> where it came from. So I am going to share a little bit of uh, English history. Actually, interestingly, it is based on the French word, Niger, which is black or dark or the spanish word negro which is black or dark so it's not it's a word that was literal that was perverted to be made Mm. derogatory interesting so that's a little bit of interesting history for you so when you hear it you know understand it was probably people that were intending to be classy but you know subverting the meaning of it well, in the film, the credits roll, the beginning credits rolls. we see a man who we will come to know as Adam Kramer uh, riding a bus and uh, driving along the, uh, the, you know, the southern, uh, southern road. The bus stops off in a small southern town. He finds his way to the local hotel where he gets a room. And uh, we get a large taste about what this film is, <laughs> is right away <laughs> as the uh, uh, woman sends a man up to air out uh, Adam Kramer's room and... He takes his time doing it, and she, uh, yeah, this is where you get your first N-word. 
<laughs> she says, and then directly quoting, he must have nigger blood in him. Excuse my language. <laughs> I don't think we can go through this without bleeping ourselves, but you know, she and she says because he's so lazy. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say I took that bullet for you, Christopher. I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But, it, you know, so right away we get the impression that this is this is a woman saying this. This is not. This is a, a uh, sweet little old woman. Not only is this just a sweet little old woman. Did you, do you know who this woman is? I actually don't. But that was the point. It's this little old woman. So it's a very normal thing for her to say. Well, this little old woman is no, no other than June Foray, who is a prolific voice actress who goes back, you know, decades and decades, worked up just up until recently i'm not sure if she's still doing any work today i think she's still with us well in her 90s she of course was the voice in you know dozens of characters in the old looney tunes cartoon including including (laughs) including the little granny if you remember her from the looney tunes my goodness i do so she and sweetie bird uh (laughs) uh-huh oh no and she That's also, just ruined Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes <laughs> for me forever. Oh my goodness! And she also friend. voiced uh, Rocky the Flying Squirrel and Natasha in the Rocky and Bullwinkle oh my show. Goodness! Wow, that just—I oh, just had this horrible mental image, mental odd. I don't know. <laughs> this mental of of Granny dropping the N word. Yeah. Of Rocky. Oh, <laughs> like, all the horrible things. Oh my goodness! So. Ah, uh, that's yeah. Yeah, wow. if, if you go back and watch it now, and you you will the voice, it, it may have like just kind of twinned something in your brain. Well, now you'll know that that that's the oh. voice of Granny from Looney Tunes. Yeah, I don't think I can, can rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Mr. Kramer here says that he's in town to do a little social work, specifically with the integration problem. I suppose you're a salesman. You might say I'm in social work. I've come to do what I can for the town. The integration problem. Oh, that. But that's all over. I mean, they've got ten niggers enrolled already in the schools. And they're starting Monday. Yes, I know. Uh, Do you think it's right? No. I sure don't. Neither does nobody. But it's the law. Whose law? So the general view is that the problem's over. Uh, No one likes it, but it's the law. Well, the woman takes Kramer to his room, and along the way we can hear a couple arguing or something through their door in the hallway there. And as the uh, woman leaves Kramer, there's a brief scene with yeah, Kramer and the, and the woman in the room, and there's this odd, he does this odd thing where he holds out his hands and, we're going to be friends, aren't we? It's just yeah. he does it very creepily. This is William Shatner, by the way. I just, I, I, I mentioned his name earlier, but yeah, Adam Kramer, the star of this thing, is William Shatner. A very young William Shatner. He is. And and William Shatner, particularly at this age, is such an attractive man. And and so for him to go momentarily into this creepy moment, and he does it again later. He does it a couple of times later on in different scenes where it just is profoundly creepy. Yeah. It's kind of bizarre. It's, <laughs> I think that it gives you a hint of who he really is, is mm, inside, yes. you know, as opposed to the, the pretty face that he puts out for everybody. Well, as Kramer gets settled, the woman leaves and stops at the room next door. She bangs on the door and tells the couple to stop all that carrying on. A uh, rather sweaty man in a t-shirt opens the door, and the woman chastises him for not having the modesty of a hog. (laughs) She tells him that there is a new tenant, and he's a gentleman. Well, Sam Griffin 
is his name, says he is he's a gentleman too. He just has all this sex appeal and it just gets in the way. <laughs> well, Sam's wife comes to the door and tries to tell her that they'll that there won't be any more trouble, but Sam picks her up and pulls her inside. It's a little it's a little rapey. <laughs> wantonly well they're married so (laughs) but yes you could definitely say wantonly yes (laughs) i don't and if i recall correctly she doesn't exactly protest no but she does does that oh damn you oh sam i'm gonna kill you yeah it it, she doesn't exactly sounds normal to me (laughs) yeah hey how you live your life whatever yeah there you go Well, we get a brief glimpse into Kramer's room where we see him loading a handgun and then making shooting noises as he points it around the room. I, oh, I just, I mean, you know, it's again, it's an indication of who he really is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to see to see this and he is a grown man holding a gun, pointing it at the window and going, pew, pew, pew. I just, right. oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, how mature are we? Obviously not very. No. Well, this scene flashes to a soda machine filling a glass at the local cafe. They they do they try to be artsy, where he's doing that, well, that turns into, into the of the oh. soda machine. <laughs> I missed it. Well, Kramer comes in and immediately catches the eye of the young girl behind the counter. Uh, Kramer gets a cup of coffee and some change for the phone. A young boy there tries to weasel his way out of pain for his root beer. But the girl makes him pay, which makes the boy call her the meanest girl in town and warns Kramer to be careful. She might bite his head off. Are you really the meanest girl on the face of the earth? That's what people tell me. Oh, they're wrong. You don't look mean at all. Thank you. You go to school around here? Uh-huh. I didn't know they had a college in Caxton. Oh, they don't. You don't go to high school, do you? Mm-hmm. My, my, they do grow things fast here, don't they? You know, Miss, I've heard an awful lot about Southern hospitality. The question is, does it really exist? Well, sure, I guess so. No, I mean, really. See, here's the thing. I've just moved into Caxton, and I'm anxious to meet some young people here. But I don't have any contacts. Isn't that a sad story? Oh, hi, Dad. I'll check you later. Uh, Additional creepiness there with his, uh, they do grow things quick around here. (laughs) Well, yeah, and he says, oh, you know, I didn't know they had a college here. And she says, I don't go to college. You know, super sweet, innocent girl here. And he is obviously an adult man, and she's obviously in high school because she says she is, and he's hitting on her. Yeah. Which, in the 1700s, okay. But (laughs) in the 1960s, maybe not. Right. Well, about this time, uh, another man comes in, and the girl c- calls and says, Oh, hi, Dad, and which Kramer does a quick, check you later. <laughs> I love that, and he just slinks away. He just slides away. Well, this is Tom McDaniel, and he's here to pick up his daughter, Ella. Tom talks to the uh, store owner briefly and says that he's happy that it appears that the school's going to open without any trouble. Because it turns out that the we're on the eve of the integration of the local school. As Tom and Ella leave, she asks if he thinks a girl her age would be allowed to date older men. <laughs> like He's like, huh? Uh, never mind. How much older? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at the McDaniel house, Tom and Ella arrive. Tom is getting home late, apparently. And his wife sets about making him some supper. And she tells him about an odd phone call she just got. Someone was asking about what she thought about the integration of the school. Tom asks if he left his name, but his wife doesn't remember. 
Well, fortunately, her extremely outspoken dad remembers who just comes into the room. What'd you say? Well, I didn't exactly know what to say, but, well, I told him the truth, that I didn't like it. Did you give a name? I don't remember. Kramer. That's his name, Adam Kramer. Makes sense, too. The best sense I've heard in a year. Where's the coffee? Sit down, Dad. I'll get you some. First thing you get around this house, you gotta ask for it. What's the matter with you? Mad because we got somebody in town with a little gumption? Afraid you're gonna get showed up? Look, I'm tired. From what? Sitting around on your dead rump all day? Oh, Dad. It's the truth. Everybody knows it. River could bust loose and flood the whole damn town. What do you think he'd do? Write editorials. It takes work and muscles, boy, to stop a flood. And that's what we got on our hands, a great big black flood. You cut out that kind of talk in front, Ella. Well, I guess that's what happens when you get old and sick. People treat you like dirt, spit on you, waiting around for you to die. All right. Let's forget it. Ruth, get my medicine. Your husband's doing his best to give me a heart attack. What about you, Ella? What do you think about sitting in a room with a bunch of big buck niggers? Ella thinks the same way I do. She doesn't like it, but it's a law. Can't you get that through your thick skull? A law! Well, what has he got his back up about? And it's probably worth mentioning, I think he's just an awful person. Grandpa <laughs> is just, an awful person. He's just grumpy and he's extremely racist, but I'm mean, not not to downplay that. But everything about him is horrible. It's not just that he's, you know, obviously against this integration. It's that he's just a horrible person. He's not pleasant at all. And he it, it he, the way he treats his family indicates that he doesn't care for them. No, no, absolutely not. No, he cares about himself and that's about it. In that clip that I just played, too, we also find out that Tom is pretty emotional on the whole subject of the integration, too. I don't think Tom quite knows where he stands either, but I, I think he's conflicted, and that's kind of that comes through pretty early on in, in these conversations mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. And he mentions it later, but he very avidly avoids the topic mm. it, because you can tell he's trying not to get too deep into his opinion on it. Well, the next morning, Mr. Kramer meets Sam and uh, Vi Griffin in the lobby of the hotel. Sam apologizes if they uh, kept him up last night, wink, wink, and offers to buy him some breakfast. The three get acquainted and share some small talk. Sam is a sort of salesman, or a pitchman, as he describes himself. Kramer says that he's in the social reform. While talking, Vi appears to get uncomfortable and excuses herself, claiming she has a headache. After she leaves, the men talk about her like a piece of meat. <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is really many ways that this film kind of offends people. <laughs> well, and it, it, I didn't notice quite so much how they talk about her as a piece of meat. So I, I think this might be a good point to to a good place to point out that we're probably more uh, uncomfortable with offenses to other people than we are to ourselves. Okay. Um, this movie offended me deeply in some ways, you know, and, and ironically, the there are some issues with how women are treated in it, but those didn't really bother me mm. as compared to the other issues. So it's interesting. Yes, yes. Uh, well, that's a, it's a minor issue compared to the rest of the, <laughs> what come, the topic. But even so, it doesn't bother me at all. So I think, you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just, just the thought. 
Well, later that day, Kramer hires a cab to take him to what he calls Niggertown. Well, this part of town is literally on the other side of the tracks. Uh, they drive through the place, and, uh, and Kramer looks around. It's a, it's a run-down, obviously a state of poverty, the dirt roads. Um, he just kind of takes a look around and then immediately leaves. Kramer pays a call to Vern Shipman, an obviously wealthy man from the size of his house and his beautiful horse that he's got out there in the yard. Kramer tells him that he came from Washington, D.C., and that he represents the Patrick Henry Society. And I actually looked up the Patrick Henry Society. I did, too. <laughs> Strangely enough, I don't know if you had any better luck than I do, but they don't really have a lot of history uh, on their website. It is an actual society. It does exist. It still exists to this day. But it is a, it is a society that believes in more of the... Uh, less of the federal uh, government, more in the state rights. So I guess their take would be why they don't necessarily uh, condone. They believe it's the state's rights to make that decision. See, and I, I believe that too. What I found though, I, I didn't find anything that looked legitimate online. Um, everything I found seemed to be more like set up as personal blogs. And it actually made me wonder if people had set up, something called the Patrick Henry Society without no or I, without actually having seen the movie, seen this movie, and it was completely unrelated. I was just curious because he gave a famous speech in, you know, early Amer early American history, there was a famous speech given by him. And did I say the name right, Henry Patrick Henry? Okay. Uh, so there's a speech even early on by him, and it was about freedom and liberty. And so for somebody to choose that name for a society is not you know, it could be entirely coincidental. Well, Patrick Henry himself, I did see where I couldn't find a lot of history on the Patrick Henry Society. I could find, you know, obviously there's history on Patrick Henry. He was one of the founding fathers of the United States, but he didn't really agree with a lot of the uh, constitutional Congress's, uh, you know, overall uh, idea. You know, he really believed in states' rights. So he wasn't really into the whole United States thing. He was just more, can't we all just be states? Yeah. That's interesting. The Constitution, is, well, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go a little politi political here, but the Constitution <laughs> is very pro-states rights. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting that that's, you know, the perception. Well, point being, he's not the kind of person that would believe that the federal government should make decisions for the state. And, and, the D, and what Mr. Kramer here is saying is that it really should be the state if they, it should be the state's right to de decide whether they should integrate their school or not. And beyond the states, he even makes the point, I don't know if it's at this point or later on, but that the governor and the mayor don't even have the right that it's the people as individuals who have the right to decide. Exactly. Well, Kramer, talking to Mr. Shipman, he wants to know where Mr. Shipman stands on the integration. And Shipman says that that's a stupid question. He's a southerner, after all. That's so offensive. It <laughs> <Sorry>. is. <laughs> <laughs> to to me, that's offensive. Well, uh, Kramer, my family, my family is from the south a little bit, so mm, you don't have yeah. to include that information. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kramer goes on a uh, probably is the the first racist stump speech that we're going to hear in this movie. We believe this ruling to be one of the greatest wrongs the government has ever perpetrated. Yeah, it's a shame, all right, but what can we do? Fight. We did. We lost. The law now. Whose law? 
I thought this was a democracy, and I thought a democracy was based on the collective will of the people. Sure, of course, sure. And is it the collective will of the people that Negroes should be allowed to mix with whites right under the same roof? Study with them, eat with them, maybe even sleep with them? Is it the collective will of the people that niggers should be allowed to take over the whole world? Because that's what's going to happen, Mr. Shipman. You think it can be stopped? With your help, I'm sure of it. Legally. Start talking, my boy. So after he's done there, let's see, what do we do? Oh, next we visit the home of Joey Green, one of the black students that will be going to the school. His mom has excitedly ironed his shirt for what may be the second, third, or fourth time, according to Joey. And even his little brother seems pretty amazed that his big brother will be going to a white school. Hey, man, Dick, integration. Black and white, how about that? Why don't you shut up and turn that junk off? What you talking about junk? That's music, man. I said turn it off. Joey. I'm sorry, Ma. I'm just bushed. Hey, you really gonna make him go to the white school tomorrow? Why, I'm not making him go. Am I, Joey? No, Ma. Well, it's too bad I ain't old enough. I wouldn't be scared, that's all. Who's scared? You are. Man, you know what you ought to do? I'll tell you what you ought to do. Get yourself a gun. Play it cool, see? First grade stud looks at you sideways. Blam! I really like that. I like this clip because it really... It, it sounds weird, but it's such a. It, it just shows them to be exactly the same sort of family that the McDaniels are. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you. Well, that night we find Ella out on a date with Mr. Kramer. If you can call necking a date. <laughs> yeah, they're parking and they're kissing, and uh, I think we'll move on. <laughs> that's that's it. That is the entire scene. Is yeah. They're parking and they keep kissing over and over. Yeah, well, she does that, you know, it's like, oh, I don't think my dad would like this. Kiss, kiss. I don't think Mr. Shipman would like this in his car. Kiss, kiss. And I'm like, And Kramer obviously finds this very appealing. The more, let's say, naughty he thinks she is, the more he likes her. Mm Mm-hmm. And underage and everything else. Oh, Lord. Well, now it's the morning of the big day. Time for the 10 black students to go to school. After a quick prayer at the church, they walk together uh, to the school. As they pass one of the houses, an elderly black man mumbles something. While his daughter there asks him what it was and asks him to repeat it. His quote, you Negroes are going to get some of us niggers killed. Interesting line, I thought. It is. Uh, Yeah, you didn't drop me. It is interesting. And it had been explained to me that the derogatory word is, I've heard people of different races calling people of their own races the same word. Sorry, I have a hard time saying it. Uh, <laughs> the, and, and, you know, the, the kind of response that I've gotten is, well, that it's a, a comment on their their drive or desire to support themselves, I suppose. It's, it's a comment on how lazy they are, not necessarily. In, it, in today's world, anyway, a comment on race. It's more a comment on attitude. Mm. And uh, it's, and I think this is almost a 
backwards kind of political i think he's making a political statement or an anti-political correctness statement in saying people are so uppity about saying you know oh we're we deserve these rights not uppity but they're so adamant about it that it creates problems for the people that are content with the situation or not willing to change the situation exactly that's exactly how i took it just that these young people are just in his eye you know he's lived his life Everything's fine, you know, they don't bother us, we don't bother them, and you guys are just going to ruin it for the rest mm-hmm. of us, I think is kind of the, what's, what's said in that line. But I thought that was real mm-hmm. interesting because it comes from a black man about a black people, and I thought that was a real interesting little bit there. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, the group of students make it through town uh, with the whole town watching. Not surprisingly, a crowd of protesters have gathered outside the school with their various offensive signs. A few of them yell insults at the kids. And Tom McDaniel followed the kids to the school and sees the protesters and their actions. The kids go into the school, the doors close, and the crowd disperses. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't really think about it, but it is interesting that Tom follows them in this instance to the school as opposed to events that happen later on. I just that's an interesting juxtaposition. Well, we also see that Mr. Kramer was also watching all of this from afar. That night, Mr. Kramer is on the steps of what must be the uh, the local uh, town building, the um, what do you call the big building? That's courthouse. Right? Courthouse, thank you. <laughs> the local courthouse. The local courthouse. <laughs> uh, doing another one of his, and probably his biggest racist stump speech. Now, fair warning, I want to play a clip of this speech, and I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to stop it, so this clip may be a little long, <laughs> so I do apologize if it kind of goes on for a while. But I think it's important because it is really the cornerstone of the entire film. Mm, it is. I'll tell you something right here and now. It may be hot tonight, but it's going to get hotter for a whole lot of people. This here little town's going to burn. What I mean, it's going to burn the conscience of the country and put forth a light that everyone and everybody's going to see and feel. This town I'm talking about, Caxton. People, something happened today. Ten Negroes went into the Caxton High School and sat with the white children there. Nobody stopped them. Nobody turned them out. And you know what they're saying that means? They're saying that you all don't give a darn whether the whites mix with the blacks because you didn't fight against it. Well, I say, how can somebody fight what he doesn't see? They've kept the facts away from you. They've cheated and deceived every one of you. They've filled your heads with filthy lies and kept you in the dark so that when you finally do wake up, why, we're sorry, but it's just too late. Now, I'm associated with the Patrick Henry Society, which is an organization dedicated to giving the people the truth. What I'm going to tell you is going to make your blood boil, because I'm going to show you 
But the way this country is going to go depends entirely and wholly and completely on you. You said it. Now, you all know that there was peace and quiet in the South before the NAACP started stirring up trouble. But what you don't know is that this so-called advancement of colored people is now and has always been nothing but a communist front headed by a Jew who hates America and doesn't make any bones about it either. Well, the commies didn't waste a second. They knew only too well, friends, that the quickest way to cripple a country is to mongrelize it. So they poured all the millions of dollars the Jews could get for them into this one thing, desegregation. They went to the courts. Now, Judge Silver, who is a Jew and is known to have leftist leanings. Who says so? The record says so. Look it up. Abraham Silver, for one thing, belongs to the Quill and Pen Society, which receives its funds indirectly from Moscow. So what did the judge do? Went right ahead and ordered integration for the Caxton High School. Your mayor and the governor could have stopped it, but they didn't have the guts. Right. All right. Now, you may think the problem simply whether we're going to allow 10 Negroes to go to our schools. That's only a small part of it. I'm in a position to know because the Patrick Henry Society has studied the whole thing. The real problem, whether you like it or not, is whether you're going to sit back and let desegregation spread throughout the entire South. And it's an indisputable fact that there could be no other result. The Negroes will literally and I do mean literally, control the South. The vote will be theirs. You'll have black mayors and black policemen the way they do in Chicago and New York already. Like is not a black governor and black doctors to deliver your babies, if they find time, that is. And that's the way it'll be. Did you ever stop to think about that? When you let those ten enter your school, did you? Now let me ask you. Do you people want niggers taking over? No. no. And are you willing to fight this thing down to the last ditch and keep fighting until it's over? Then I am willing to fight with you. Why, Mr. Kramer? Because I'm an American, sir, and I love my country. And I'm willing to give my life, if that be necessary, to see that my country stays free, white, and American! Yeah!
I like in the scene, I like in during the speech that you know Tom McDaniel is there. He's kind of in the crowd. He's watching everything. And he actually tries to kind of call Kramer out on some of his facts. And which uh, <laughs> that felt a little a little too relevant, honestly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting that well, I, I I like that he kind of sidesteps that his responses look at you know Kramer's responses exactly. But it's it's interesting um, the argument that Kramer takes is a common one, especially at this time period. Anything that's seen as you know scary or a norm or outside the norm is called communist or blamed on the communists and he totally takes that line mm -hmm. you know uh and you know you that may seem kind of out of the blue until again you look at the history during this time period during this time period and what's going on with with cuba and with nuclear testing and all that kind of thing it's very interesting that he ties these racial issues into communism oh it's kind of like it's this real easy way of making it seem very evil when it otherwise not be yeah, I don't remember the year it started, but we're either at the beginning of or just at the cusp of the McCarthy era, you know, with Senator McCarthy and the the Red Scare and the blacklists mm -hmm. and everything that go that rocket through Hollywood and every well, everywhere, honestly. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. It's right around that time. Yep. So after blaming desegregation on the communists and the Jews. Yeah. Good Lord. Come up with a new scapegoat, people. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And unfortunately for an innocent black family driving through town, there is still a large crowd on the street. The crowd forced the car to stop. The crowd rocks the car and taunts the family. The wife pleads for her husband to stop trying to justify them even being there. And he finally gives in and gives the folks the apology, an apology and says that they'll leave. This scene was probably the most poignant for me. Mm. And it's not one that you can explain talking about it. Because the the fear in these people's faces and their voices, it's, I think I understand why the critics were so enamored with this movie because this really shows, uh, there are a couple of scenes in this movie that really show how terrifying it could have easily become and how quickly, you know, these they're just driving through town all of a sudden. And my notes specifically say crazy freaking mob attacks like family in a car. <laughs> I mean, because that's what it is. No logic behind it. They're literally, they're not doing anything. All they're doing is trying to go home. Mm -hmm. And it's it actually a terrifying scene. I think I held my breath. Yeah. This is a very, very hard scene to, to watch. Honestly, if this scene doesn't make you uncomfortable, I... Uh, I beg you to go You're a horrible help. person. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it is a family. It's it a it's a husband and a wife. They've got two young children in the backseat of the car. The kids are crying in the backseat of the car. Uh, it is very frightening. It's very uncomfortable, very disturbing. One of the men from the crowd jumps to the car as the, uh, the, guy, the guy in the car says he's going to leave. Uh, one of the guys in the crowd jumped to the car window and yells that he thinks the guy's lying. Well, the black man jumps from the car saying he doesn't lie to anybody. Well, the, the white man spits on the black guy for talking back to him. The crowd looks like they're just waiting. They're just waiting for this guy to make the wrong move. The black yeah, man the whole, scans. I mean, it's, almost like they're, it's almost like they're holding their breath. And it's they are. Such, so much tension. It's, it's, they're obvious, it's almost like they're hoping. Oh, well, absolutely! They're hoping. They're they're looking for any anything to just justify them just being able to go absolutely nuts. Mm -hmm. The black man scans the crowd and quietly asks, "Why?" Mm -hmm. 
Well, Tom McDaniel makes his way through the crowd and pushes aside the closest men. He tells the black man to get in the car and get out. The sheriff, who's been oddly absent through all of this, finally shows up. All right, all right, what's going on here? Oh, nothing, Sheriff. The good citizens was just having a little fun, that's all. What kind of fun? The best kind. Attacking Negroes. He's lying, Sheriff. We didn't attack anybody. Oh, I know. There seems to be a difference of opinion here. Opinion's got nothing to do with it, Sheriff. The fact is, a family was terrorized on the streets of Caxton. Family? Hell, it was just a bunch of coons, yeah. Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> Who did this here terrorizing? Do you want me to arrest everybody, Tom? <laughs> all right, it's all over. Let's go home. I think we get an idea here. We start getting a really sense that even if Tom doesn't necessarily agree with segregation, Tom's a good man, mm-hmm. and he sees what he sees and what he describes is you know these are innocent people and they're being terrorized. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter that they're black. It's just that's what's really starting to bug him now is that they're innocent people. They did nothing wrong. And to be treated this way, I think this is really what's starting to really bug Tom. The next day, Tom is at work at the paper. as a newspaper man. If you didn't catch, I think you caught it from an earlier clip or something, maybe. (laughs) I didn't mention it. I know that. He's writing a piece on what transpired the night before. Well, Shipman and Kramer come into the shop. Kramer wants to run an ad in the paper. Tom takes one look at it and gives it back, telling Kramer that it doesn't meet the paper's standards. Anyway, Tom tells Kramer to just get the hell out. Well, Kramer does leave, but Shipman sticks around and talks with Tom. Well, it just occurred to me that they they never show what the ad is, but the next scene actually might be what the ad is about. Yeah, oh, very good. That's very possible. Yeah, we're, and we'll get there in just a sec. Um, so, yeah, we... Uh, just heard uh, Mr. Shipman and uh, Tom talking in the, uh, the in the press room shop there. Tom tries to talk some sense into Shipman, telling him that you know whether he likes it or not, integration is the law. You know, Tom doesn't like Kramer, doesn't trust him, and he's not going to run his ad. Well, Shipman reminds Tom that he owns the controlling stock in the paper. In short, run the ad or you're fired. Well, that night. We see a parade of cars driven by Klansmen. I like to think of it as a ghost party. A ghost. (laughs) (laughs) They see them driving through the streets and into the black neighborhood. They erect a cross in front of the church and set it ablaze. Common thing that we see a lot, especially in movies. I had to look this up because I was really curious, um, and and I found an article on it, you know, that briefly explained it. And I love the way the article started because it said, "Okay, these people are supposed to be Christians, but here they are burning the symbol of their religion, of their right, faith." Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I never understood that either, and I, I've never gone to the the effort of looking it up. So I'm kind of so, curious to hear what yeah. you say. I, I was curious, too, so I looked it up, and I'm actually going to read a quote from the article. I'm sorry I don't have the reference. Uh, I'll try and find it, and we can put it in the show notes. Um, it says, quote, Though the original clan founded in 1866 patterned many of its rituals after those of Scottish fraternal orders, cross-burning was not a part of its initial repertoire of terror. Now, the Scottish would actually, this is a side note, the Scottish would burn crosses on the hillside to kind of psych themselves up for battle. Um, so continuing the quote, Nevertheless, Thomas Dixon included a pivotal cross-burning scene in his 1905 novel, The Clan. 
He was attempting to legitimize the Klan's supposed connections to the Scottish clans. A decade later, D.W. Griffith brought the Klansman to the silver screen, eventually renaming it The Birth of a Nation. Interesting point. I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, exhilarated by Griffith's sympathetic portrayal, Klansmen started burning crosses soon after to imitate... Ooh, <laughs> to imitate minority, to imitate, that can't be right. Oh, I'm sorry. To intimidate minorities, Catholics, and anyone else suspected of betraying the order's ideals. The first reported burning took place in Georgia on Thanksgiving Eve, 1915. They've been associated with racist violence ever since. Not Interesting. Just so, yeah, yeah. I, I just, that was one of those things where I kept going, why would, why would you burn something that's supposed to be symbolic of what you believe in? That's the answer. There you go. Uh, so uh, another you know, another figure, another item, another word, another uh, thing that's just perverted uh, to yep. to someone's own agenda. Interesting. Well, later that night, uh, that same night, Mr. Kramer makes a call on Miss Griffin, you know, for coffee and conversation, which is 1962's version of Netflix and chill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he, he effectively forces his way in, claiming, you know, she tries to turn him out. She's like, no, that's not a good idea. I, I don't, you know, I'm going to bed, just go away. But he, uh, he says that, you know, Sam wouldn't, would, would be mad if he knew that she was being this unkind. So she eventually relents and lets him inside. From the room, uh, from the window in the room, Kramer looks proudly at his burning cross in the distance. Mr. Kramer, I didn't know you were a religious man. Yes, it meant it's dramatic. So is a lynching. That's old-fashioned. Otherwise, you wouldn't mind? Mrs. Griffin, that's a terrible thing to say. These people like me. I'm here to save lives, not to take them. I'm the Empress of China. I know what you're doing here, but why? Who can say? Great times call forth great men. You're a great man? Not yet. I love this line that she says. Yeah, Vi is not an unintelligent woman. I mean, she's, I think she's very smart. I, she may have her issues, but I think Vi is pretty, she's a pretty smart cookie. She's arguably the most intelligent, most interesting woman in this entire movie. Yeah, and she's only I, in the movie for a few minutes, honestly. She, but she is. is. And honestly, when you get her backstory a little bit later in the movie, it makes her even more interesting. <laughs> so it is interesting. You have a lot of women in here that are plain, you know, two-dimensional, very racist, or two-dimensional, very innocent, uh, including both Ella and her mother. But And I think Vi is the only one that actually has any depth to her character. Yeah. Yeah, and, of course, Kramer does his best to completely ruin her life. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, it's pretty easy to, to tell that Vi sees right through Kramer. And, um, yeah, Kramer makes his moves on Vi, and, yeah, honestly, it's all rather disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> this is, again, kind of one of those creepy moments where it's, it's the 1960s and sexuality is becoming a big deal, but at the same time, this is a guy that is just straight up trying to get in bed with another man's wife. Mm -hmm. And he's just creepy. He's he just really creepy. creepy. <laughs> oh, the one excuse. Oh, you know, these lights are giving off a lot of heat. <laughs> he turns them off. Hoo-wee. I bet you we're down five degrees already. <laughs> oh, man. There's a lot of hoo-weeing in this movie, by <laughs> the way. There is. I don't it even is, know what that means. <laughs> it, is the, it is the South. I mean, come on. Well, back at the McDaniels' house, Tom and his wife see the burning cross as well. Mrs. McDaniel says that that's the last straw. They're taking Ella out of school. 
but Tom tells her that they are going to do nothing of the kind. Tom asks his wife what she thinks of integration. Ruth, tell me something. How do you feel about this question? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I know what you mean. About integration? Well, I, I think it's a terrible thing. Why? Why? Because it just isn't right, that's why. Tom, are you in favor of it? Yes. Well, why didn't you... Because I didn't know. I don't think I knew really till now. One thing Adam Kramer's done for us, he's made us face ourselves. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of anything. Except this is right. And we've got to face up to it. So, yeah, Tom's a really good guy. He is. Again, this is kind of a good indication. It's not that his wife isn't a good person. It's that she's not terribly independent in her thoughts. Well, back at the church with a now smoldering cross, a couple of the clansmen run into the shadows. Uh, they light a bundle of dynamite and toss it into a church window. Well, the explosion, of course, wakes up the entire town, including Joey Green. He runs to the church in time to see the reverend stumbling out uh, of, of the front door. Uh, the, reverend, the reverend dies in Joey's arms. Well, next we find ourselves in the local jail. Shipman, Shipman is there with the sheriff. Uh, the sheriff has arrested Kramer after he smarted off at the sheriff, I'm assuming while being questioned about the bombing. And apparently uh, Kramer dared him to uh, take him in. Well, Shipman isn't too pleased about the bombing. He was with Kramer because Kramer said he could stop this whole integration thing without breaking the law. Shipman tells Kramer that the bail is set at $10,000. What's Kramer going to do if Shipman doesn't front the money? Kramer motions towards the cell window. Says he doesn't need Shipman's money. Outside we see a huge crowd, crowd of people with free Kramer signs. I wanted to say real quickly, it, it, is it just me or when he's in jail, does he compare himself to Socrates, Lenin, and yes, Hitler? Does. Yeah, never underestimate the uh, never yeah. underestimate a jail cell. Yeah. Remember Socrates, Lenin, and Hitler. Why would you compare yourself uh, to well, Hitler? It's, mm. He was probably the most charismatic person in in recent history. Yeah, maybe. For sure. Well, at the local diner, Kramer thanks his followers for stepping up for him and, and posting his bail. Thank you, thank you very much. I want to thank the Reverend Neeson, Mr. Carey. Mr. Dongan, for what they done for me. Our friend Vern Shipman offered to get me out of jail. I told him no. I told him, look you here, the people will see to it. <laughs> now listen, he's a good man, but he didn't believe me. I want to know I'm mighty glad to show him I was right. He knows for sure now the people of Caxton won't stand still for no injustice. What the sheriff thought was that I was responsible for the dynamiting up in the Badlands. Why, I couldn't hardly believe he was serious. I said to him, Sheriff, I said, whoever planted that bomb, it wasn't nobody in the Patrick Henry Society. We got brains enough to know 
that killing a nigger preacher and blowing up a church can do us nothing but harm. Throwing a scare into the niggers is good. But we got to be very, very careful. Right? Yeah, that's right. Now, I ain't condemning anybody. Whoever planted that bomb was doing what he thought was right. But he was wrong. I hope you all see that now and go on acting according to the orders of the society. Well, I don't know anything about that. But I know one thing. Ain't gonna be one solitary nigger gonna have enough guts to step into our school now. It's all over. And it's this moment in the movie where I slightly like Kramer because he does say that I mean, he, he's making a point that when you bomb a church and kill a preacher or a holy man or a pastor or anything like that, you're basically you're creating mm -hmm. a martyr. But but at the same time, he he actually seems not to want there to be violence. Right, yeah. And I think this is the only scene where you really mm -hmm. believe it that he really right. doesn't. Well, Kramer returns to his hotel room to find Sam Griffin there. Sam confides in him that Vi has run out on him. Kramer poorly acts concerned. Well, Sam is sure it was another man. In fact, Sam makes this point with Kramer's own gun. He knows exactly which man it was. I, I do love this moment where he says, it was a man, and Kramer says, but who? Yes, you? pointing the gun at him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just all of a sudden. But, and I think this is, you know, where I went, where I mentioned you get a little bit of Vi's backstory, you know, and, and he doesn't use this phrase, but essentially he describes that she had, has addiction. Mm -hmm. And I love his compassion toward her because Sam, you know, explains he I, I love, too, that he says, I'm, I, I don't know if it's before or after, but he says, I'm going to find her again, you know, and it's going to be better right. than ever. But uh, he also says, you know, some man caught her in a mm -hmm. weak moment. And I love that he still has so much faith in her, you know, that she still that he still cares about her and he still obviously wants her back and is obviously distraught about this. But this is I think. This is the moment where I actually realize Sam is really a person and not just a caricature mm -hmm. of a salesman. Well, Kramer tries to weasel his way out of trouble, lying that he wasn't the aggressor and reminding Sam that it wasn't all his fault. Well, it looks like Sam is going to finish Kramer off, but he ends up actually just tossing the gun on the bed. Sam tells Kramer that they're both salesmen. You know something? We're in the same line, you and me. We're both selling something. But I've been at it longer. I can see where you're making mistakes. And right now, those mistakes are beginning to pile up on you. And a little while, they're going to smother you. Get out of here. I've been studying your pitch. It's not bad. you got technique. But you know what's wrong? You're too clever, Adam. You've got no room in your head for intelligence. Because if you were intelligent, you'd be able to see that you started something you can't control. You think you're the boss now? Wake up, boy. That mob's the boss. What do you know, you big boob? Did you tell him to blow up the church? I think it's a great moment. I mean, yeah. there's there's almost a sense great of realization moment. for Kramer too at this moment when 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 Sam tells him is like, "Do you think you're you're in charge? You're not in charge." I I really like that moment. There are moments earlier, and I had read briefly uh, that you know the movie about uh, thinks he has control, but he doesn't mm -hmm. have control. And so there are moments in the movie where you see that he's not certain that he can handle things. You know, where something happens and he thinks, "Oh crud, I'm not. Oh, they're not listening to me right now." But I think what really, really makes him angry is that Sam 
recognizes that. Not so much that it's true, but that he knows it and that somebody else knows it makes him Mm -hmm. really angry. Well, at this moment, uh, Kramer goes and grabs the gun from the bed and threatens Sam. Well, Sam calls his bluff, and he ends up being proven right. Kramer can't pull the trigger. And and I love this because he said, you know, Kramer says, I'm going to count to five, and then I'm going to And he can't even barely make himself say, you know, he counts to three, and then he can barely make himself say four, and then he just stops. And and people rag on, on the chat for not being able to act, but I believed in this, you know, and, and yeah, I was part of the story too, but you, you really get Sam really has his finger on this guy and he really knows this guy thinks he's all that, but he also knows down that he's really not. He, and he wants to project that image of being this really powerful character, but inside he knows, you know, Kramer knows that he really mm. isn't. And, you know, when he just falls apart, not even being able to count, it's not even that he doesn't pull the trigger. It's that he doesn't even finish. Well, Sam, Tells him, see, you're just a you're just a coward. You can't pull the trigger. And then Sam shows that he's emptied the bullets from the gun because, you know, you can't be too careful. The following morning, Tom McDaniel visits the Green family, and he begs them to send Joey and the other kids to school. Miss Green? That's right. My name is McDaniel. I think we've met once. I'm the editor of the newspaper. You come here to gloat, mister. Get on back to town. Put it in the paper. Let's niggas give up. You want to kill any more of us. Bob! Mr. Green, I know you have no reason to trust me, and I have no right to expect you to. But I'm on your side. Yeah. Please. Please believe me. I understand how you feel. I know it's hard. And I can't promise you that nobody else will get hurt. Maybe they will. I don't know. But you mustn't give up now. Your boy here and the other children have got to go to school this morning. It means everything. That's easy to say, but what have you got to lose, white man? My job, my home, maybe my family. Is that enough for you? Joy, don't try to stop me. Pop, you know he's right, and so do I. We can't give up now. We'd better hurry. I, I lo- And I like Joey in this scene. I, he's just this smart, practical kid. He's not setting out to be something amazing. He's just, you know... He's just doing the thing that he thinks is the right thing to do. Well, Joey and the other black students and Tom march through town to school. And this is where I love that they switch it around because at first Tom kind of slinks behind the students and watches them and follows up. But in this case, he's right in front, obviously leading yes. them the whole way. So Tom leaves them. You know, the kids, they get to school. Um, the kids thank them and they, they go on into school. And as on his way back through town towards his car, Tom is confronted by a group that want to know why he walked these kids to school. They want answers. And after a good punch in the gut, Tom only gives them questions, like where were they when the church was bombed and the preacher killed? Well, the crowd jumps Tom and beats him to the ground. And a rather vicious uh, fight, well, I wouldn't even call it a fight, a vicious beating takes place. It's a really nice uh, bit of uh, film work there where the camera's on the ground and all you see is feet coming at the screen kind of thing. It's Mm -hmm. just as brutal as the rest of the movie. And we see exactly how brutal, because the next we see Tom, he's in the hospital, bruised and bandaged, and learning that he has lost one of his eyes. This is the scene I think that may, it's it's interesting because it feels like there are scenes throughout this movie where at least on the adult side they really reveal the character kind of in a single scene, and uh, 
and this you get both Tom and his wife in this one, but she says some things to him that I love. I, I do love though, you know, she she basically says, even if I don't, oh, she, I love what she says. I'm going to quote her. Uh, it's the, you know, he says, she goes to get the doctor and he says, no, don't get the doctor yet. I want to talk to you. And they're talking about it. And she says, it's, this is the best thing you've ever done. And I'm proud of you. I don't believe in integration, but I believe in you. And, uh, I let, she just basically says, I'm going to stick by if I agree with you because you're more important, than, you know, the politics of. Yeah. I, I really like that. The, 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 her last line is that if he's willing to risk his risk, risk everything, risk his life for it, then it must be the right thing. That's really great. Yeah, she's fantastic in this. Well, Ella returns to back to the McDaniels home and fills in her grandfather on her dad's condition. And I think I'm going to end the synopsis here with the with this last clip because Ella's final line to her uh, racist grandfather is pretty much sums up how I feel about the subject right here. Well, how is he? Haven't you gone deaf to ask you a question? Well? He has four broken ribs and... And what? Internal injuries and he... And he lost his eye. Oh, he was lucky. Lucky? Yes, in my day, to struck a man up for doing what he done. And I'd have been on the end of the rope, too. What's the matter with him, anyhow? How am I going to face my friends? I never was so embarrassed in my life. Oh, shut your filthy Mouth. <laughs> uh, so yes, that's where I want to end the synopsis. We got about twenty minutes left of the film, and while I, you know, obviously there are still important things to happen, and I don't want to give away all the ending. I will admit that the end ending of the film, and I'd like to hear your take on it. I I think that's the one piece of this movie that doesn't hold up terribly well for me. I found an interest. Well, I I didn't even find it. I realized an interesting tidbit of trivia. Uh, there's a key character at the end of the movie that uh, the the principal of the mm-hmm. school actually, and I, he may have been in a scene earlier, but you don't really notice him. And it turns out he actually wrote the book and the screenplay that this movie is based on. Yes, that was Charles Beaumont. Yes. Yeah, so I, it's just a little side thing of trivia, so it was pretty interesting. But as as characters go, he turns out to be, it's so weird, it's like he's completely out, he's out of this entire movie until the very end. And I don't know if I like that, because it, it shows that, hey, there's not one hero that goes in and does everything, you know? Or if it's kind of, it just seems natural. You don't You don't question, wait, you know, why is this guy suddenly in it? It's logical, it makes sense that he's there. But I, I thought I just thought it was fascinating that they got the author to act as this one character that is a particularly strong character, in my opinion. But I think the the final kind of confrontations and stuff that happens towards the end, uh, we get uh, Sam Griffin that shows up. And again, I don't want to I don't want to spoil the actual you actual spoil the the film. But I find that you know Sam Griffin shows up and he kind of plays a, a, a rather large role that seems out of place. Thinking about it, he does mention that he's going to stick around town and see what happens. But yeah, you're right. There is a a bit of deus ex machina going on here where he suddenly shows up. Uh, And and I feel like actually it would have made so much sense if it had been Tom. Sure, it would have. But unfortunately, he was laid up in the hospital with broken ribs. (laughs) And a missing eye. 
But <laughs> but come on, you can walk with a missing eye. That's what no. would have happened today. <laughs> if it, it was the film was made today, yeah. he would have been, you know, people would have been holding him up. He would have been on crutches. It would have been some, the music would have swelled. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. Fair yeah. point. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do. I agree with you. I kept, I mean, the, the, ex, the explanation held up, but the manner of it is arguably a little shaky. I, I agree with you on that. So there, there are moments at the end. I, there are moments at the end of this that I really want to talk about. I literally have written in my notes about Kramer. At one point, he's totally the devil. <laughs> so I just, I was just typing notes as I was watching it. You know, but it, it I think, it's worth mentioning at the end of my notes in all caps. It happens to, to the town after. I really want to see a movie about a town, right. After this yeah, no happened. kidding. And I kind of almost feel like they made that the help. But <laughs> I don't know. Um, it just, but it was interesting because it, it took the whole movie for me to get interested in some of these characters. Like, for example, Joey. I'm not very interested in him until pretty much at this point. And then at, at this point, you know, I, I want to see more of what happens later on with his family. And... uh and, and the town, and, you know, obviously, integration sticks, but what happened? I guess I wanted to go into Sweet Valley High at that point <laughs> and, and explain, oh, who started dating who, and did they get married, and where did they go to school? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting, because it, it takes this long to get invested in the characters, and then at the end of the movie, it's like, oh, wait, and I want to know what happens. It, it ends very abruptly, as you said, and you kind of want to know. We want that nice wrap that we get at the end of modern right. movies, or at least I do. I want something nice to happen in this movie. Nothing nice <laughs> happens in this movie. It's and, you know, and it's profound and it's meaningful, but there's not really very much like actual nice, happy, pleasant anything. No, because even even the the nice stuff, it, it, what you can take as being you know the right thing or whatever towards the end, it's still kind of tainted by all the dark things that happened that led up to it. Yeah. So it's like, oh, it's great, yeah. and but. You know, poor Tom is still, you know, he, he may not even survive. We don't know. <laughs> Presumably he will. I hope so. I just, I assume he will. Maybe not in the newspaper, though. What does he go on to do after that? Yeah, it's, there are a lot. I want to know, does Sam find Vi again? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it ends really abruptly and we never see Vi. But uh, and maybe, you know, maybe that's a story to write. Yeah. <laughs> the intruder part two. Well, <laughs> more like Sam and Vi, the yeah. extra years. Being addiction, the Sam and Vi story. I don't know. <laughs> now, we obviously talked that you know, William Shatner is the star of the film, and he's the most recognizable name. Um, I think a lot of people will recognize some of the actors uh, who are just character actors that you will find in films and television throughout the 60s and 70s and maybe even going into the 80s, including... Uh, Frank Maxwell, who played Tom McDaniel, um, recognizable voice. You probably maybe some of these clips may actually kind of spark your memory a little bit and think I I think I know that guy. I don't I know I've seen him in other things. Um, he's just got a long list of things, dozens of television shows that I know I've watched. So I'm guessing he's just been in an episode here and there. And then. Um, who played, uh, oh, uh, Robert Earnhardt as Vern Shipman is another character actor you will recognize from popping up here and there. And then in Sam Griffin is played by uh, Leo Gordon. Again, a 
character actor. You will see him in a lot of film and television through the 60s, 70s, and, and then going into the 80s. So there is recognizable people, if not recognizable um, names, uh, aside from Shatner, obviously. And Charles Beaumont is a... Uh, he was a pretty prolific uh, writer. He used to pen a lot of stories for the Twilight Zone. He did. I saw that. He did two Mickey Mouse. Two Mickey Mouse episodes? If you're into that. No, two Mickey Mouse comics. Apparently there was a Mickey Mouse comic book, and he wrote two of the – or he was involved in creating two of them. Yeah, so there's a lot of talent that goes into this film. Roger Cor- – this may be – I mean, just on – quality of subject and everything and of directing this may be Roger Corman's best work honestly I mean it's phenomenal I think as far as uh, directing some of the uh, some of the camera work some of the decisions and and how he shot and what he shot I think were just spot on um, not well, spot on like I would know you know I really like it let me just put it that way there you go it didn't it didn't there were points where you notice it and that really, I think, a good indicator of something that's done well. Notice the direction and you notice the the way that it's shot or the angles. That's when you start going, mm, this wasn't done as well as it could have been. But, yeah, there's there weren't any shaky cameras. Nobody bumped into anything. You didn't, I, you know, it, and that sounds really basic. But all the way up through the black and white area, you run into that a lot, yeah, I you think. You definitely tell that the budget was small. Uh, the amount, you, you see the same people over and over uh, the the one blonde woman you see on the street as she crosses in front of the kids as they walk to school. And then suddenly she's at the school holding a sign. And then of course she's there one time. Oh, she, <laughs> I didn't know she's there that. in the crowd when Tom <laughs> gets beat up. I mean, it's the same group of people just reused and reused over and over. And that's fine. You know, it's a small budget. It's, it's what you can do, but they, I, they still pull it off really well. And I, yeah, this is a great one. I mean, this is a film that I, as soon as I found out about it and found out that it was kind of just laying out there in the public domain, it's a film I've been wanting to cover here on Orphan Entertainment. Uh, but I think the subject matter kind of maybe kept me away from it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little more um, on the sociolo- sociopolitical serious side than we typically absolutely, cover. Yes, absolutely. But I, I'm, I'm curious now to read the book or at least the end of the book and see how the book ends to see if it and similarly to the movie, since we talked about how brief, how abruptly the yeah, movie ends. Yeah, I'd be really curious to actually just read the, the the novel just to see what made it to the film and and what didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's probably a lot more. You get the feeling that there are some bits to the story that don't get told in the film, and it, it you maybe mm. feel like maybe there's a, it's a little abrupt. Um, there's even a line or two every now and again that I, you don't know. There's a, a moment in Kramer's speech towards the end where he's talking to Sam or or somebody, and he mentions something about that black woman you kissed. And like, what? Yeah. What, black, what? I just assumed he was just making it up like he did the stuff about Vi. But we assume he yeah, made that up. Either he made it yeah. up or it was edited out or it was in the novel and didn't make the film or something like that. So it'd be, it'd be yeah. really curious. Well, and... I wish I had looked up at what time it became legalized to show an interracial couple. Um, I think, you know, Look Who's Coming to Dinner wasn't made very long Mm -hmm. after this. I probably should look that up. But um, it'd be interesting to know at at what point that type of thing was allowed 
just to know, well, guess who's coming to dinner was 1967, so five years after this. Uh, but it'd be interesting to know at what point that was even considered okay, because for them to mention that would be that would be pretty shocking in a lot of uh, in a lot of areas, I'd suppose. Particularly if it's true. Well, let's see. Should we go ahead and do you have anything else to say before we go ahead and put some ratings on this? I don't think I do. It, it is one of those where I prepared notes through the end of the movie because I thought we might talk about it. It's a pretty rough movie to watch uh, in a lot of ways. The language we mentioned, but even more than that, I think that the, that it is a it's based not on factual events, but on factual, you know, on, on a real mm-hmm. situation and on a real climate in our country's history. And it's it's difficult to watch for that, but also just because of the amount of real terror and real danger, I think, that is presented in the movie and that, you know, it, at least definitely I felt pretty strongly. So it's hard to watch because it's not one of those where, yeah, you have stressful moments, but then there are happy ones in between. It's it's pretty much a stressful movie the whole way through. So, you know, if you if you choose not to watch it, after us talking about that, you know, I wouldn't think any less of you for it. It's probably not one that I would have watched if it hadn't been for Orphaned Entertainment or definitely not one I would have talked to people right. about. <laughs> not necessarily because it's a bad movie, but because it's it just covers issues that I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. comfortable with. Uh, just to be very blunt. I think it's uncomfortable because while this is a fictionalized story, I think it is something... I'm I'm guessing that this happened. Mm, it's rooted in reality for sure. Very well, just rooted in reality, and everything that you see here. Maybe it didn't all happen together, but it happened somewhere to somebody at, at some point, and that I think is what makes it really the you know the most uncomfortable when you really think about it is that it's it's not fake, it's not outrageous, you know, and it's it's very real. But I'm willing to start putting some ratings on it here. And it's a, a kind of a tough one to rate, because just like what you were saying here, I wouldn't blame anyone for not watching it. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel it's one of those films that I feel like sometimes you have to kind of hold this mirror up to yourself kind of thing. If you are in uh, a social history class, in the that's talking about the U.S. during this time period, this is an extremely valuable movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really gives you an idea about the kind of struggle I think that people were going through at the time, whether they were in favor or against integration, and, and, and the reasons why they were for or against. Yes. That's another thing this film does a really good job is it explains yeah. many reasons on both sides why one would someone would take one side or another. Mm-hmm. And, and whether they're legitimate reasons or not, they're certainly believed or perceived as legitimate by those who believe them. Uh, so, or, you know, whether we feel they're legitimate or not, the people who express them believe they're legitimate. So I think you know, as, as a valuable piece of, as a valuable reflection of American history, I think it's way up there. As far as movies that I would recommend, I would never recommend my parents watch it. <laughs> In fact, I told my stepmom, I said, if you're going to watch or if you're going to listen to our podcast, don't start with this episode. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, but that's not to say that it's not a valuable movie or shouldn't be watched. It's just more, you know, there people are simpler, more sensitive about it than others. So I think with that being said, I would feel plenty comfortable with like a four and a half 
I was, you know, it's funny. Started, I thought, oh, you know, it's it's got really good values, so I would, you know, I'd give it at least a two, is what I originally (laughs) thought. But as we've been talking through it, and I started thinking about it, I think it it is a solid four. Maybe maybe you could say three and a half. Okay. Just, it's not, uh, as films go, there is nothing revolutionary in it as the industry goes, as the technology goes. I didn't see anything that just was like, that was a really neat effect or that was a really unusual way that they, pre- that they presented that. Um, there wasn't anything really groundbreaking in it. Uh, as the story goes, it's, a, I think, a very good story mm-hmm. uh, in, in that it has a lot of value in it for different reasons. And I think the acting was good. Uh, the The way it was put together, it, you're right, it felt truncated. It felt like there were bits that were left out. So I wouldn't put it as high as a four and a half okay. <laughs> just because it wasn't, it wasn't outstanding. It wasn't phenomenal as something that was, oh, wow. Gosh, you know, you should really see this just for this one reason, uh, you know, outside, of course, the value it has, I think, to the history. So, I th- yeah, I think, I'm, I think I'm comfortable with the three and a half. Okay. Well, because, not because it's bad, but just because there's not anything as, as a movie that just jumps out. Well, a four and a half I would give if I was pushed, but I would feel comfortable with a solid four. Without a, without question, I would give it a four myself. I think I'd be comfortable with that. Yeah. That was kind of my initial thing. I kind of talked myself down from that. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it's, I actually, no, I think I want to go with a three and a half. I'm going to be, I'm really going to say a three and a half. Right, no, that's fine. <laughs> and, and, you know, discussing it, it really does come down to there not being anything really just phenomenal outside of the story. The story is the strong point in it. Mm-hmm. Or the the message even is the strong point in it. Well, and maybe I give it a, maybe that extra half point just because of it being Roger Corman who. <laughs> no, well, seriously, because he is no, no, I'm, I'm he is so he is so associated <laughs> with the schlock films that mean yeah. absolutely nothing. I think it it's really interesting to see a film that he tried to make where he's like, okay, I'm going to tell a message, I'm going to tell a real story. I think that's really interesting, and I also probably give it some some a little bit of credit because it's William Shatner in a in a role that you will not see him do ever again. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it really is such a Sullivan's Travel movie for Corman in real life. I think I think you know the the whole premise of that is you know he's he wants to really tell his message, but it didn't work out for him. You know, and this is exactly the same kind of thing. Corman has this, you know, powerful message he wants to share, but it just, you know, it failed at the box office. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, if you, a good movie. If you haven't seen it, guys, look at the Sullivan's Travels. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess that will do it, uh, Lydia. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, this was. I, I told you before we, um, we before we started recording that I was a little nervous. I started watching the film and I was like, I'm a little nervous about actually discussing and reviewing this thing. But by the end of watching it the second time, I was like, I really want to discuss this film. I want to talk about this. I want to bring it to people's attention. So I, I felt really, exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, so I was really excited to do it in the end. And I'm, and I'm glad we did. I'm glad we finally got around to it. It only took us five years. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. It is, it is a hard movie to talk about, uh, especially. And, you know, you're reviewing it and you have to address the language and you have to address the social, you know, some of the some of the actions in the movie. Uh, I, I think we I think you deserve points for 
for agreeing to this movie. <laughs> it's not you probably won't hear a whole lot of people talk about this unless it is in a social studies uh, kind of setting. Yes, well, and it was especially kind of poignant for me because I, while I did not grow up in what I would consider like an overtly racist family, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, my my parents, yeah, maybe a little, you know. Um, it, the 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 n-word is not a word that i was not aware of when i was a child yeah uh, well, well and i mentioned to you um my, my parents are from they grew up in the south i should say and uh my ever i distinctly recall one of my aunts within the last two decades dropping the n-word at thanksgiving dinner and i know i told you that <laughs> uh but talk about me being shocked you know i grew up in colorado where you know it's just it's not it's a complete issue but um having moved further, you know, into a more Southern culture now, it is, it's uncomfortable to consider how real this movie is. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I, so I think for me, it's because I've, I've made this journey, maybe not as drastic as like Tom did, but I've made sort of like the Tom journey, maybe in a, in a, in a smaller sense myself. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I think that was why this film maybe just rings a little bit more poignant to me. Yeah. It's just, it, it's baffling to me. I, I just genuinely don't understand. I understand why people are angry at individuals for stupid things they do, but I just, I am completely baffled at by the, racism. Yeah, the, it makes sense to me. A blind, the blind hatred of, of, of a race just because of the race. Yeah. Because I, they're, yeah, just because their appearance, it's just completely baffling to me. Mm-hmm. I genuinely, and I, I don't want to understand it, honestly. Right. Um, I, from, from a logical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint, I just cannot understand it at all. And, it, you know, they say we, we hate what we fear and we fear out of ignorance. So it's, uh, maybe I just don't, maybe I just don't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just baffles me. It's and it is interesting. I think to you know, uh, I'll stop babbling. But I, I'm glad we talked about it because it's uh, it's interesting. Well, that is going to do it. Uh, really, any feedback on this film or any others, please. I have to think there's somebody else that goes goes ahead and watches this film and has a thought or two. Please send it our way. Uh, type out an email or record an MP3 and send it to orphanentertainment at gmail dot com. Or please come and start a conversation on the Facebook uh, group page. That would be awesome. I'd really appreciate it. I'd, l- I'd love to know what anybody specifically thinks of Shatner's performance in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Foreman was quoted as saying that Shatner did a horrible job in it. but And Shatner was quoted as having said that Corman said he did a horrible job in it. <laughs> I didn't notice it. I didn't notice him doing a horrible job. I, You know, he's Shatner and he did, you know, a particular character. So I'd be very interested to hear anybody else's opinion on that. Yeah, I would too. I, I do think there was a couple moments where I thought he maybe played it a little further over the top. And I was wondering if he did that on purpose to kind of hammer home the point that he's trying to be a caricature and not you know like this isn't me (laughs) yeah kind of thing right well and and even just uh yeah (laughs) sorry we could launch into a whole nother conversation about how i think he (laughs) portraying a very weak character in a lot of ways (laughs) but uh yeah but please we want to hear your your thoughts on that and and anything else you have to share about this movie absolutely so until uh, next month, we will. I think we're going to try to find something a little bit more lighthearted. 
Hopefully. <laughs> I need a laugh. I need something besides my own jokes to support me, please. <laughs> yeah. So next time, Birth of a Nation. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh Lord, maybe of maybe of mice and men. <laughs> oh, man. Well, until then, thank you very much, everyone, for listening and downloading. Really appreciate it. We will talk to you next time. You guys have a great time. Bye. Bye.